Welcome to Think Peace, the podcast for founders, creators, coaches, and curious minds building the future of online business. I'm your host, Sarah M. Chapel. It's time to think deeper. Hello, hello. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back. It's Sarah. <laughs> Today, we're going to go on a bit of a journey together. I'm going to take you a little bit behind the scenes of some of the thinking that I'm doing right now, some of the curiosities that I am experiencing, some of, yeah, some of the stuff that I'm trying to figure out, um, specifically about online courses, specifically about what's not working right now, why we're having so many problems in programs online. Last week, we talked a bit about the marketing lens of this, right? The lead generation, the really the collapse of lead generation online and how a lot of these old ways of getting leads at scale are no longer working. You can check that out, um, the episode called The Future of Online Marketing, which was just the last one. Today, we're gonna be talking about more about online digital products, right? And digital education. And I wanna clarify, as I said, this is a little bit of a, of a ride with. I'm just taking you along <laughs> as I work on thinking these things through. I am in the process right now of really clarifying my own pedagogical approach, what I think really matters, what I think is really important right now, especially for those of us that teach adults online specifically. And that means that I don't have it all figured out. I'm in the process. <laughs> this is something I've been working on actually as a bigger essay and probably as a workshop that I'll teach this fall, I hope, um, or a course of some kind, but it is in process. So those of you that like it when I come in and I have like the five steps this and the framework to that and that, this may not be the episode for you and it's totally okay, you can skip it. <laughs> those of you, uh, yeah, just wait for, the, wait for the, the essay, wait for the course where the ideas are flushed out. Those of you that are curious about the questions I'm asking, the sources I'm pulling in, the way that I am thinking through these things, I think you'll enjoy just kind of following me through the thought process. I have notes, I'm not going totally without anything, but I'm gonna be trying to just take you along as I think this through today. Quick uh, side note before we dive in, I just wanna thank you all so much for your lovely feedback on our relaunch. We've gotten really great uh, feedback on the first couple episodes. I so, so, so am so grateful. And if you have enjoyed it, please go leave a review on iTunes or on the podcasting platform of your choice. Um, I appreciate those of you that have left some reviews. They're really helpful, especially as we kind of reinvigorate the show. It helps new people to find us, helps us to get, you know, boosted up the search algorithm, et cetera, et cetera. It also helps me feel better about myself. So thanks for that. I'm sure my therapist appreciates it. So let's start talking about this, right? <laughs> I'm probably going to title this, No One Wants Your Online Course. And that's something I've been saying for years, really through a sales communication lens. Nobody wants the thing. No one wants an online course. No one wants to sit on Zoom all day, right? No one has ever desired this. What we usually want, right, is the experience of learning, maybe if we're people who love to learn, which I am. But what people mostly want is the outcome, right? They want the thing that becomes possible because they've learned something. They want the skill to, they want the, want the skill. They want the outcome. They want the result. This is especially true for adult learners. This is especially true of education at this moment in time when education has become, especially higher education, a vocational training that is extraordinarily expensive, but is deemed to be required to get a good job right? Education has not always been as directly linked 
two jobs in the way that it is now, especially at this kind of adult level of learning, of um, having skill development kind of outsourced to educational institutions instead of being something you actually learn on the job. That is a, that is a shift. That is something that I think has really become much worse over probably the past several decades. And it's not something I'm going to get super into today, but it's important to note that when we're working with people who are coming to any education online, they're steeped in this, right? In this belief that there has to be a clear ROI from learning. Conveniently, uh, even though it's a little bit of a devil's deal, it's much easier to sell stuff with a clear ROI. So these two things kind of become linked, right? The consumer expectation, and I mean the word consumer here rather than student, the consumer expectation of educational process is that they're going to get something at the end. Again, I am, uh, I'm an in, I have intellectual overexcitability. I do just genuinely love learning. I'm very good at it. I love it. it. It's something that I just, I'm one of those people. I'm a lifelong learner. So I like to learn and I like the process of learning. But that's not inherent, right? Learning and love of learning is often something that needs to be taught. It needs to be fostered, right? Even for folks who have a natural tendency towards that, you can still not have it developed. And very reasonably, people approach education as consumers. That is how we have been trained, right? You go to the right school, you get a good job. That's literally the the metric (laughs) that we approach education with rather than this idea of it being exploratory, a place for personal development, a place to learn how to think or things like that. This matters because when we start to create online pedagogy, if we really want to do right by our students, we're often doing some, we're often doing something that's counter to what they think they want. And that tension, which I'm completely comfortable with, as you get to know me, if you don't already, I'm often working in contradictions. I'm often working in tension. I am always holding multiple truths <laughs> as as real at one time. You're you're going to have a very hard time pinning me down into anything because I believe things are extremely situational and um, change moment to moment. And uh, I can also just, yeah, hold multiple truths at once. So I think it's really true with online education, especially for adults, right? Is that we have people who have this desire for learning. And I think they do. I really just believe, I actually believe everybody has a desire to learn regardless of, of the categorizations. I just think that's a natural human thing. We are figure outers. We are, we are makers of meaning. We are, we are learners um, inherently, I, I believe. Um, but we also see, right, that if people are going to spend money on education, they want it to create a certain result, especially for adult learners, especially adult learners who are busy, especially adult learners who have other responsibilities. So the kind of like go-to pedagogy kind of focus for adult learners is this like very clear ROI, very step-by-step, and like this idea that it needs to be immediately applicable to their daily lives in this kind of reductionist way. If you like go searching around like teaching adult learners, you'll find this stuff that really talks about adults as if they're stupid. Like it, it's, it's really kind of wild. This idea that people can't understand why they would want to learn or can't like, it's just like this extremely like reductionist approach to education, but it comes out of this place, right? Of people being, of being busy and overwhelmed. And so the idea that the only way for them to learn is for it to be very, very practical, right? Needs to be practically tied back to their immediate life. And I don't inherently disagree with that. A lot of the pedagogy that I draw on is in this very individual approach. Um, we're going to be talking about some of those people today, but John Dewey in particular, you know, there is this individual level of approach instead of this depositing of information that I think actually reflects some of how this like adult learning is approached. 
But there's something in the way it's talked about where it's like extremely minimizing and I think a little offensive to people's abilities to engage with material. And that's kind of where I'm coming at this today is I think that online education treats students like they're dumb. <laughs> like I really think that so much of what we're drawing on is approaching people as if they are not smart enough to do this, right? Now, I say that with this caveat that if we look through this kind of like the impact of kind of the systemic influences of our time, it's likely that people are actually having a harder time learning, right? We know that people are really overwhelmed. It would be a complete um, mistake to overlook the impact of, for example, inflationary pressures on financial stress, stress being a known factor. I was just talking to my husband about this earlier. Um, in, in actually making it harder for people to learn things, right? Like kind of short-circuiting your system, making it harder to take in information when you're in that kind of fight or flight mode and panic mode. So there are these like very real impacts, but at the same time, talking to people like they are not smart enough to learn something is not a great place to begin an educational conversation. I think that online education doesn't have a lot of faith in its students. And one of the ways this comes up is in this, not only this dumbing down in terms of the learning process and what specifically we're teaching, but also in the way that we, we do teach. For example, when we see that people are having a hard time with attention span things, and I'm going to get into this a little bit more, but um, that especially kind of in this, you know, after the, the Zoom years, right, people are having a harder time focusing online. There are more and more demands on people's time. And all that is to some extent real. But we also, at this first sign of people having a hard time focus, give up the demand for focus, right? As teachers, as educators, which by the way, if you have an online course, you are, I don't care if you identify yourself as a creator or an influencer or whatever, it'd be really powerful for you to actually recognize that you're a teacher if you're making online courses of some kind. I think it's important to claim that role. It's very easy to kind of like get out of it. I wrote a whole essay about that at Every, um, The Promise and Problems of Online Courses where I talk a little bit more about that kind of like psychology for creators making courses who don't think of themselves as teachers. But we immediately go to this place of dumbing it down, right? Of kind of going to the lowest common denominator. Okay, people are having a hard time focusing. We need to be more entertaining, right? Like, oh, people watch TikTok all day. That means all educational videos need to be 30 seconds with a dance to a lip sync, right? And there is, of course, very cool educational stuff happening on TikTok. Um, I think, of course, of uh, Planet Money Guy, my favorite one there, right? There's a lot of cool stuff happening there. But the idea that all education needs to fit within this edutainment, a word I'm going to be honest, I fucking hate. I hate that. I was like, what a, just an embarrassment to both of those fields. Um, that everything needs to be edutainment is this race to the bottom where we actually are making it easier for people to no longer focus, right? We're not asking people to show up with respect for themselves, with respect for the process, with respect for what they're trying to learn, with respect for their own fucking time that they're dedicating. Instead, we're saying, oh no, we think you can't possibly do this. So here is the shortest soundbite. Here is the most simple version. Here is the gamified version. Something else I really loathe, this like ping gamification, get a tag when you do this thing. <laughs> If you're also terminally online and like I am, you probably saw the uh, woman who went uh, viral last week off of TikTok for being an NPC, a, a non-player character and getting, making bank <laughs> when people are giving her like little, like little bites of corn and shit on TikTok. Brilliant. That woman is the hero of the internet this week. But 
what we're saying is we're basically treating people like they're that, like, like you're a video game character and you are not able to actually make your own decisions or take responsibility for what you choose. So we have this whole system, right? Around like, okay, gamify it, dopamine hack it, like all these tips and tricks. And I think if you as an individual student want to use those things, you know, I know a lot of folks who are neurodivergent, who have attention challenges, have a lot of stuff that they do to help them focus when they choose to. But I think the choice is really important. And that can be a collaborative process between a teacher and a student, definitely. But this this whole thing of, yeah, little bells and whistles and like attention grabbing stuff, it erodes education because we're starting from this baseline assumption that people are, are too stupid to learn. Like I really, I fundamentally think there's like a deep disrespect for students and for consumers in the online education space that I, I really want to interrogate and question. So we have this issue, right? Everything is being in this kind of like <laughs> dumbed down and maybe better language for this. Again, as I said, I'm working out these ideas. You're, you're watching me think it through real time. Um, I, I, I don't love that kind of language. I think it feels really harsh, but that's what it feels like to me. And so we have these two things, right? We have this kind of gamification. Every, no one, everyone's attention span is terrible. So let's just play into that, which I just, again, we don't have to do that. We don't have to, um, encourage people to keep sliding down <laughs> the inability to focus. Um, I would venture that education is actually a place where is a really powerful place to help people rebuild that skill actually, but that might be something we need to work on more. In addition to that, right? A lot of online education do perhaps just to these format issues is essentially the banking model. So this is an idea that comes from Paulo Freire who wrote pedagogy of the oppressed recommend reading it. It's like not a hard read. It's not the easiest read, but it's not like a hard, hard read. And it's fairly short for an kind of academic educational text. Um, and he talks about the banking model is essentially this idea of depositing information into students, right? There's a very one way approach to education where the teacher is just giving you stuff, stuffing you full of info. And if that, um, if that resonates with you, right? That's probably because you probably had that kind of education. Most people do. When you look at something like common core and testing and the kind of conservative, um, approaches to education, especially in the United States with this very kind of metric rubric thing that we're very into, um, that doesn't give a lot of wiggle room for teachers to actually develop curriculum. I'm talking more now about like middle school, high school stuff. You'll start to see that like this banking model is this still the default model. And Ferrari was writing in the the sixties. I could be mistaken about that. It was a while ago. His work is also very similar in that sense to John Dewey, who is also saying that you need to take the student in their in their like, situation into account, right? Like that it, these are not things that are are fixed points. So when we look at online education, we can see how the banking model really is predominant, right? Even in educational situations that include the opportunity for dialogue, which is something that uh, Freire really says is a requirement to education. And I tend to agree that really is, I think at my core, I am a, like a dialectical teacher. Um, I teach through questions. I teach by opening doors that people have to walk through and figure out, <laughs> um, in my best, in my best state. Right. But I too fall into the banking model online, which is one of the reasons I'm so interested in this. 
but we look at this, right? We see a lot of courses are step-by-step, -step, right? How to do this very specific thing in this very narrow focus, how to set up a dashboard, how to use Notion, even how to like launch a course, right? These things that can be formulaic. And as I said at the beginning, we fall into this because first of all, it's easier to sell. Second of all, that's what consumers say they want at least, right? Have been trained to want, right? That that is an enculturated desire. It's not inherent that we approach education that way. Easier to sell. It's what people say they want. And it's also easier to teach. In the sense that if you can teach a step-by-step -step method, do this, do this, do this, get this, right? It's far more replicable at scale, which is the key piece of online education, right? Online education, we are always talking about being at scale helping as many people as possible as once. This, this kind of massive um, focus on volume, which as I spoke about last week, I think is going to become a really big issue due to the marketing and lead generation challenges of our time. I've also talked about this through some other lenses and other places. So if it sounds familiar to you, this is probably why. So I think that part of this challenge is that it does feel like students want to be deposited into like that they're actually having a hard time um, engaging more deeply and more actively. Engagement is a real challenge right now. And that might be to some extent because of the passive training that we have in terms of how we interact with content online. You know, this is something I don't have kind of the, the I don't know, experience to back up beyond my, my observations, but I really do believe that there's a passivity that the internet encourages, especially with the speed with which we consume this edutainment and other kind of social media style entertainment, where passive consumption becomes the default. That's very hard to overcome when you get somebody into a classroom setting online, because a lot of the mediums are the same. Video, audio, written text on a screen. The medium is very similar to how people are consuming this other information in social media settings. And I think it, it encourages that passivity to continue. And I think that really, at the end of the day, is the biggest challenge we have right now is, right, how do we get dialogue back into education online? And there's a few issues here. First of all, when I've been talking about this with some of my clients, I'm not really sure that engagement is necessarily the best metric for educational success online. I think when working with adults in particular, it's really important. And I think this is probably, I mean, honestly, I think this is true of children too, but that's a whole other conversation kind of outside of my scope. Um, I think it's really important for the adults to say what success is to them, right? Like as an educator, especially when we're in this kind of consumer driven setting, I don't think it's up to me to tell you what you should get out of my program, what, how you should deem success. I have my own things that I like to see in my programs, right? For example, when I uh, run a cohort that teaches people how to launch, I want them to launch. <laughs> like for me, if they don't launch, if they don't do the thing, I don't view that as a success. And that program tends to have a very success high success rate by my own standards because it's such a clear metric. There, there's a binary, you launch or you don't, right? Which again, comes back to what I said earlier about kind of reductionist education and how easy it is to sell things that have these clear results. But that piece of engagement, you know, that may not be really the best metric, but we have to then help our students create their own metrics. And this is a place where I often don't think about it until later when I'm teaching, because it's not until I realize that no one's doing what I want them to do that I'm like, oh, I didn't help them set their own success metrics that they could go towards. So we're all just kind of operating in this loose place where I'm assessing based off of something that they haven't actually consented to be assessed on. So I also think that 
that piece about engagement is interesting because we have to look back at the passivity and how we're increasing it. The place of online education as a scalable education model necessarily reduces face time with teachers. It's impossible essentially to scale an online education product without getting rid of (laughs) that, without getting rid of feedback. If you are apparently scaling it, you're not really, you're just hiring more teachers and more coaches. You're just creating a school, right? I think most people who have scalable online programs really just have schools, but there is this kind of tendency towards a much lower interaction than you would have at a school. Of course, it's reflected in the cost, Um, but we, we lose this, what's the word really? Tangibility because so many things are recorded It is all remote if we're talking about online education. And again, it's in these mediums that we have become accustomed to engaging with in this very passive way. I think um, I actually want to just pull in, you know, I am a big fan of the work of Byung-Chul Han, who is a German-Korean philosopher. And there's this great um, interview with him from a couple years ago at artreview.com. I definitely recommend just search Byung-Chul Han Art Review. You'll find it. Um, I really like it because it really synthesizes a lot of his philosophy and his books are great. They're only like 60 words. I mean, 60 words, 60 pages. They're really short, but they're super dense. And this is a really great way to kind of break into some of his philosophy. But one of the things he says in this that I really love is digitalization dematerializes, disembodies, and eventually strips away the substantiality of our world. It, it says, you know, it also eliminates memories. Rather than keeping track of memories, we amass data and information. We've all become infomaniacs. This infomania makes objects disappear. Okay, so he starts to talk about this difference between information and objects. And there's um, a, a book that he wrote about that. And this digitalization of life, essentially, you know, he really critiques through this lens of how it has become information and how it has become um, flattened in that sense. And I think that that applies here because so much of what education really is, is creating memory, is creating context, is essentially located in place and time. And online education necessarily strips the embodiment part of education. And this is the thing that people have been trying to solve for years. You know, if you go over to Udemy or Coursera and you look at some of the highest ranked courses, you see people like doing this song and dance and they're recorded and they're like, you know, they're really, it's like they're really there with you, except they're obviously not. It's so fake, it's so curated. And on the opposite side, right, we see people launching courses that are not curated at all. It's them and a microphone, maybe a slide deck, maybe just their face. It's essentially a really well-organized podcast, and there's value in that. But again, it's dematerialized, right? There's no material. There's no there there. Recordings make this really clear, but even when we're in a place like a Zoom call or some other place where we have interaction, we're still approaching it often through this dematerialized, de-physicalized lens. And something that I'm really starting to like hook into is how much that I think education requires a certain level of embodiment. Um, I think that the separation of information from the physical lived experience of how you get that information is a huge problem. You know, the... Hmm. 
one of the issues we have, you know, I was talking a little bit about kind of diverse learners and people who are challenged by, um, by focus online, which honestly is most of us, like I, I'm talking about people like these are other people, like this includes me a hundred percent. Um, one of the issues with it is that there's this lack of accountability, right? And a lot of people do need accountability to do hard things. I think that's fine. And developing that as like a personal skill to hold yourself accountable to your goals and your vision is a great skill to develop, but it's also okay to need external accountability. But one of the problems is that, you know, accountability really comes from a spatial orientation. It comes from the space that you're in, you're accountable to your location, you're accountable to where your body is, you're accountable to time, essentially. It's hard to be accountable to a recording, right? It's hard to be accountable to a space that is transcending time, which as cool as it sounds, and it's something I've often really loved about working online is this fact that time is so fluid online and so nonlinear. Um, it's hard to root into accountability in the absence of the body, in the absence of space. So how do we create kind of this emergent and I think what I'm ultimately getting at, like autonomous education without the accountability of space? So I um, went to a high school that I learned much later, was kind of radical in how it taught. It was different than what I had experienced, but I didn't realize until honestly a couple years ago how radical it was. It's at my school. We sat around these big wooden tables that were specifically designed so that you could see everybody's face. <laughs> um, so you could see their eyes and the teacher sat with you. Everyone's on the same level around this kind of oval table. Um, the best ones of course had tons of great graffiti on them. Thank you. Thank you to the past students who gave us something to look at during class. Cause this isn't to say you couldn't be bored even in, even rooted in space and time. But you're sitting there with people around the table. And all of our classes were discussion-based. Now there were things we got up and did, right? And science had labs, for example, but everything was discussion-based. Everything was emergent. We had homework, we had reading, we God, had math, these like horrific math problems. Y'all, I'm actually not bad at math, but I love this teaching model. But for me, for math, it was so hard. <laughs> I did so poorly in math in high school. And then of course went on to do very well in college um, with a more, more kind of like traditional um, educational approach there. But the, the idea was very much that it was emergent, right? We would read something, we'd come in and we would talk about it right? We would develop ideas and the teacher did guide. A teacher would add a prompt. A teacher would redirect. A teacher would facilitate, of course. And they, of course, chose the, the material we were engaging with and framed how we engaged with it. But everything emerged from our discussion. That was how we learned. That was how we did history. That's how we did science. Um, that's how we did, we had so little kind of straight, like somebody at the blackboard teaching us in my school. And when I try to come online, I see myself try to replicate this right? The sense of emergence and autonomy, the sense that the student actually has the inherent drive to move forward. And that if we can create the right environment, that they will do that. But the environmental creation online, that's the place I keep getting stuck. That's probably where I'm going to leave off today because honestly, I've been rambling for a while, but I think that's really the question I want us to dig into. You know, Dewey talks about that, about this careful curation of space. And I was reading um, this article honestly not very good. Um, a couple, a couple articles that weren't very good this week, but had some interesting ideas. Um, one about black mountain school and the relationship between black mountain school and John Dewey black mountain school was an unaccredited kind of radical school in, um, mountains of North Carolina in the thirties and forties. Um, 
had a lot of artists come out of that space. It's very famous. Uh, quick side note, this is just me being snarky, but I saw someone say that, uh, essentially refer to, I don't know, Facebook and Twitter as being like, I don't know, Harvard or USC or something. And Substack as being the Black Mountain College of, <laughs> I, said, I said Black Mountain School, Black Mountain College, Black Mountain College of like online spaces. And I just have to be honest, y'all, like Substack is not the Black Mountain College of online spaces. <laughs> it's not the Black Mountain College of social media. Um, I don't understand how something rooted in critical pedagogy and, um, that had no funding and was democratically organized. And yeah, anyway, um, just to continue my ongoing Substack rant, side note, side note, God, do I have to get on Substack? Driving me nuts. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not above it. I'm not above using Substack, but I really don't want to. We'll see if it becomes a requirement for online space in the same way that social media has. So anyway, right. Black Mountain College and it's talking a little bit about like this, this curation of space and how important it is. And Freire talks about this as well. This is uh, this idea of like the space being important is something that I think people think a lot about for early childhood education. Like, you know, like kids need these bright colors and these like places to explore. Or if you look at something like Montessori style where the space is really carefully curated in order to create these things. When it comes to adult education, right? Often we're just like in a classroom with like, like a shitty classroom somewhere, right? Or in a shitty online space. So that is ultimately the question I'm going to kind of leave us with today as one of these pieces I'm trying to figure out is how do we create the space online for that innate, if latent, learning ability to emerge for our adult learners? And the places I've seen the most successful with this do a couple things that I think are actually a little radical and counter to how a lot of people are teaching online right now. First of all, often they do not have recordings of classes. <laughs> Live events are not recorded. This is a tough one. I have often found that offering recordings is a great way to get higher conversions, right? Again, we see that sales and pedagogy don't necessarily link. Um, it's the easiest objection for somebody to not join a program is because they're going to miss a session, right? So from a sales perspective, it makes a lot of sense to offer recordings. But from a learning perspective, I think it's really a mistake, doesn't mean I'm going to stop, but I, I can't stop thinking about the fact that I think that's a mistake. I think it is not actually increasing accessibility in the way people think it is. Now, if somebody has, for example, a learning disability or an accessibility challenge and they need recordings for that reason, that's a different situation. But the, for the people who essentially are going to use that to not prioritize the class, because that's what happens, I think we're doing them a disservice and ourselves, right? And I'm also, I'm a student too, right? So I, I understand I'm like, is she talking as a teacher or as a student? Both, I'm talking as both. I think we're doing a disservice. I took a class um, a little while ago where nothing was recorded unless you had to miss part of the class, in which case only the portion you missed was recorded. It was only available for maybe two days or something, really, really brief, and nobody else got the recording. It was just the person who missed it. And I really loved that. I didn't miss a single class for an entire year. There were 12 sessions. I missed none of them, right? And that piece of not having it available via recording is a forcing function for people to show up. And I don't know that, again, that engagement, which whatever, whatever the fuck that means, is a great way for us to assess success. But I do think that showing up is probably helpful for learning. 
And one of the ways we can do that is to say, this is live. That's it. There are not only, there are plenty of situations where that's not necessarily required. And I do think self-study courses continue to have a role to play in the space, but I'm thinking a lot of these kind of cohorts or these kind of hybrid models where there is coaching or feedback or community building. And those things are happening live, but it's deprioritized because of the recording. So I, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm going to stop offering recordings. I haven't gotten to that place yet, but I'm kind of close <laughs> again, unless there is a, an accessibility issue, um, for somebody like for an individual, I don't think I'm going to, I like, I really kind of want to pull the plug on them. And so there's that sense of space. Like we have to be in space together. And if, if it needs to be emergent, right, we also probably need to do more teaching on how to engage with the space. And this is a place where I often fall short because it's not until I'm in something that I see the particular problems that a particular group is having. But at the same time, if you kind of going into something halfway and saying, oh no, we need to change how we engage, of course you can redesign a space, but it's harder. So I think more about how do we set people up to use spaces appropriately? How do we set them up to be embodied in their space, even if we're engaging online and remote, I think is something that's really exciting to think about. And I think the third thing I'm really excited to think about is how can we do more emergent education and how can we make sure people get the information they need without anticipating the outcome, right? Without dictating the outcome. It is very easy to teach that way online because that's what, what's, it is what sells. It's way, 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 way easier to sell something with a specific outcome. So much easier. Um, and I also find just as a kind of a side note there, I also find that students kind of have a habit now of getting overwhelmed when there are options that when, when things are not fixed, I get a lot of, a lot of anxiety back from people. And usually we can work through it, but if, if it's an open door, an open loop, if it is a, an open possibility, there's a lot of anxiety that emerges. You know, the indoctrination really screams that there is one right answer or one next step, which of course there really is, especially in business where I help people, right? There's like never a right answer. So I think that we can try to open loops for students' minds and create questions, um, but they, I think that that anxiety is really, really hard. I think the last piece here really is how can we help people to rediscover their own curiosity? And I suspect this actually starts by challenging the assumption that I've had throughout this, where I've said that the easiest thing to sell is something with a really clear outcome. If we start the conversation from this place, that in order to get sales, we have to have a distinct outcome. I think that that pre-frames the educational experience in a way that closes it down, right? That, that reduces creativity and reduces curiosity. I've had the immense fortune in a lot of my programs, especially the longer ones, to see people really flourish into curiosity and see students start to self-organize, which is my absolute favorite. Like that's truly my dream is to create the space where people still start to self-organize. They start to create groups for themselves. They start to create events together. They start to do all sorts of cool stuff that has literally has nothing to do with me. That is like my ultimate goal. I was like, you guys like, go forth, right? They are, they are taking their agency. They are taking their curiosity and they're growing with it. But if we start the process, like the sales process from this place of fixity, of course, right? How can we expect the educational process to be different? So I guess it comes down to what's the purpose of education? 
this is something we might disagree on. You might be somebody who says, actually, yes, right? Education needs to produce specific results. It needs to be quantifiable. It needs to have demonstrable impacts on somebody's income, for example, in order for it to be valuable. To which I would say, (laughs) nope. (laughs) I would say, no, I, I don't think that's true. And I think the most powerful education experiences I've ever had were ones with less fixed directionality with more exploration. But bringing that online, I think is really hard. And I think the people that are doing that well are very bold and brave and I admire them. And that's kind of what I want to figure out how to do more for myself. I don't know if we got somewhere today. I warned you in advance. (laughs) I warned you in advance that I was going to kind of ramble through some ideas, think out loud, help you see the different pieces that I'm pulling in as I try to make sense of a lot of different experiences, a lot of opinions, and a lot of fears. Ultimately, I do believe that we are at a really delightful reckoning point where we already know a lot of what doesn't work. We already know that we can, by charging a lot of money or having small groups or all these different things, kind of force function, you know, engagement. But I don't know if we know really how to be great teachers online, how to create curiosity online, how to encourage autonomy in our students and clients online, especially without the physicality of it in this disembodied information-driven space. I'll keep working on it. I hope you do too. And I hope if you teach online that maybe this will help you question something you've done Question something you've assumed has to be right. As I said, a lot of the stuff that I do, I'm not sure it's right. A lot of that I think is actually kind of bad. (laughs) And I'm really, really curious about what I can do differently. Especially now when we know people are busy, they're overwhelmed, they're tired, and they probably aren't watching those fucking recordings. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Think Peace. You can read the newsletter, join the community, and learn how to work with me at thinkpeace.fyi. I'll see you next time.